Greetings and welcome to the Men of Sorrows Finding Joy podcast. I am William Lloyd. I am a man of sorrow, and yet I have great joy because, because of God, because of what Jesus Christ has done in his death, burial, and resurrection. The hope of mankind, the hope of all mankind, that blessed hope and the great news for all people that we talk about during Christmas time. Today, I sit down with Joe Freeman. Um, Joe Freeman has a testimony of recovery from drug addiction and a visit to hospice three different times where he was staring death in the eye. He also recently suffered a great betrayal while he was sick. And we talk about Joe's life, his testimony, his, his grief journey, his sorrow, his, his death sentence that he has within his body, and what gives him the hope to persevere. I hope you enjoy our talk. And if you need any help with any of the issues discussed, be sure to email either myself or Joe Freeman. Joe Freeman's email will be in the show notes along with the video of his testimony and some other items. Thank you for listening. All right, I'm here with my good, dear friend, Joe Freeman, who I've nicknamed Not Dead Yet Joe. And um, <laughs> Joe and I met through, um, really through through ministry years ago, and he was someone that you just, um, 10 years ago or so, someone that you just kind of hit it off with right away. We have a lot in common, Joe. We were both lifeguards on the Jersey Shore addicts in different ways I was I was on the codependency side and the sexual dysfunction side then we found Jesus Christ in, in a beautiful way so why don't you start off by just kind of giving your little bit of testimony of how you came to faith in Jesus and then we'll talk about your various grief journeys various times that where you entered hospice and what the grief process was like then so Feel free to share as much or as little as you want. I give the the nickel tour. I mean, I grew up the oldest of nine boys in Philadelphia originally, then the suburbs, then down at the Jersey Shore, as you mentioned, in Wildwood Crest. A lot centers around my father and his anger. I suffered tremendous physical abuse and emotional abuse, which I thought was normal then. And I mean bad. But to me, I thought that was the responsibility of the oldest son. Uh, started working with him. He was a school teacher, but he had a paper route where he delivered 1,200 papers a day, filled up the inquiries, 1,500 on Sundays. He used to wake me up when I was five and six years old to fold papers in his truck <laughs> Sundays. And I used to collect with him every day because I could make change. So I, to me, that was normal. I never remember loving my father. I was frightened of him. Um, my first memory in my house is sitting at the top of the steps with him smacking my mom around. Later on at 11, I was sexually abused by a family friend, a woman actually, from 11 to 12 and a half. And that really messed me up. And I didn't talk about that for 45 years. Um, I had a lot of responsibility as the oldest of the nine. There was always a new baby, you know, was responsible yeah. for changing and doing laundry and stuff kids shouldn't be doing, you know, I mean. 
or that you would like them not to. I don't really have any regrets on a lot of the things I learned there. But I will tell you this, I held my breath for about 16 years in that house because I never knew when I was going to get it. Yeah. At the age of 15, I discovered my solution. I was brought up in the Catholic Church. I remember after one beating, knowing Jesus Christ personally from this standpoint, I knew he was sitting on the bed with me. I just knew it. Yeah. I can't explain that. I wasn't born again. I had done some of my sacraments. But at 15, I found my solution was people pleasing and alcohol. If I could get you to like me and accept me and value me. And when that wasn't happening, if I could go into kind of a different world with some whiskey, the very first night I drank, I got into a fight with a really dear friend of mine. I should have known that was <laughs> trying to tell me that's not a good thing. I got the scars on my fingers to remind me all the time. But yeah. At 18, New Jersey changed the drinking age to, eight, to, uh, to 18. I was in college and I was off to the races. Uh, I was never really much into pot and hash, which were going around and Coke wasn't on the scene yet, but I drank every day and uh, was always in the middle of the party or starting the party or whatever. Chased women like crazy. That was another drug um, and a comfort piece. I hurt a lot of people. I got out of there and taught briefly and then met a girl that summer as I was a lifeguard. I moved to Pittsburgh. <clears throat> Her mom liked the guy she broke up with because he was going to be an attorney. So I felt like I was competing right away. And so I went to a headhunter and I got a job in the sales and I was in corporate sales successfully for about 30 some years, including starting some of my own businesses, uh, health club businesses, uh, publishing businesses. But all the money I was making was then I got into the cocaine scene in 86 and was selling and actually a little earlier than that in 83. I was selling and using and that was a mess, man, because now I'm up later drinking more and trying to hold down a job. Fortunately, I was in good shape. I was a runner, triathlete, you know, that whole thing. But, you know, it all catches up and God was working on me. Significant thing that happened was 1976, walking through the new student union at Trenton State College. I was walking with my buddy, Dennis Healy, and a guy came walking over. He was tying his shoe, and I remember through the skylight, these blue eyes of his, and I remember saying to myself, man, they look like the eyes of Jesus. <laughs> I came over and said, have you guys heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? And I said, no. That was the first year of Bill Bright's um, Campus Crusade for Christ. Which yeah. Crew. And when he started talking about what Christ had done and the cross and all of that, I was mesmerized. And I made a decision that day, that moment, right there in the student center to pray to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I know I was saved. I mean, I know that I believed everything. I had some background on it. But boy, what I didn't know. <laughs> I did not know uh, the victorious Christian life. I did not know Galatians 2.20. I did not understand. I wasn't reading the Bible. And the long and short of it was through periods of time of my life, I was on a steady decline. Even though I was trying, I was burning the candle literally at both ends. 
I got married. That was a disaster. She was 13 years younger. She was deeply in love. She just wanted to have kids and, you know, the old penned in yard and let me go to work and come home. And well, most of that worked except for the penned in yard and uh, me coming home. Uh, I forget how many missing persons she filed on me because now I'm smoking crack and the long and short of my drug and alcohol use is it lasted 39 years to the point where I finally got and said, I, I just can't do this. I remember a, a, a kid I used to coach who was now a police officer in Wildwood. We found a dead guy upstairs in this crack hotel I was living in. And Jack said to me, he looks better than you. You ought to be in the box. And I was yeah. shaken up. One of my close friends that I used to do a lot of drugs with had gone to a place called America's Keswick, founded by William Ross in 1897, the oldest Christian rehab in the country. I believe it's the oldest rehab in the country. And Bobby had a startling change by having Jesus Christ as the answer to what was going on in that, what we now know is to build that hole in the soul. You know, if the body's yeah. Three parts of body, spirit, and soul. Our souls, our personality, with our mind, emotion, and will. And, and there's that hole. And I had a huge hole, and was filling it with drink and alcohol and women. Um, somehow, I made the phone call, got on a waiting list. A couple of things happened. They moved me up. April 29th, two thousand ten. I showed up at the Colony of Mercy. Uh, hurting, sober, had broken ribs from a fall. It was a work therapy program. <laughs> gonna get fired and thrown out because I was on trash duty and I was having trouble lifting those trash bags but I was like Lord this is it I believe this is my last chance and slowly I began to get it it was a four-month program they then had a voluntary discipleship program I stayed for and then they gave out something they don't do a lot of was an internship and I was interning in the colony and I was actually counseling the guys and working with the guys and and I was right where I needed to be. Um, later in 2011, I met a woman I married. Later on, she was involved with the family of America's Keswick. And things were good. We went to a seminar uh, down in Tennessee at a place called Grace Fellowship International, founded by Dr. Charles Solomon, who wrote the handbook to happiness. His whole philosophy was on the victorious Christian life, you know. Galatians mm -hmm. 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And, and that blew my mind. And But I accepted that and began to study on that and learn on that. And eventually, we did some work for them. That didn't work out. So we went out on our own and started our own 501c3 called Love Them to Life in which we worked with the addicts. I mostly had that end of it, but we also worked with the families and friends that were affected by the addict. Cause the addict would often get well and go home to the same environment. Yeah. And, yeah. and, oh. um, and there was a lot of bitterness and there was a lot of stuff to repair there. So, um, and that took place up until I just resigned in February of this year. In between all that, when I got married in January of 2012, six months later, I was stricken with pain I've never had before and never felt. And I've been an athlete my whole life, football and 
you know me pretty good, but I don't complain about a lot of stuff. And mm -hmm. but I could not even. I was in school for my master's in biblical counseling from Luther Rice University, and um, my wife was saying I need to get you to the hospital, and she was really upset because I was in that bad of shape. The next day I went. Two days after that, the GI guy said, look, this is out of my hands. I'm going to have to send you down to this teaching hospital in Camden called Cooper. And they thought I had pancreatic cancer, which made sense to me with all the drinking I did. And that I had some liver issues, whatever. But I got down there and the ducts were blocked in the pancreas. The pancreas produces insulin and it produces enzymes. The enzymes are eating the pancreas from the inside out. So it was as if I had pancreatic cancer and they did a uh, very comprehensive. I think it's the most comprehensive abdominal surgery called the Whipple. Um, and told me I had a 20% chance of getting off the table if I had the Whipple and 0% if I didn't. So I did. I had failure to thrive. And since then, I have been really in bad shape. I ended up getting an autoimmune disease called retroperitoneal fibrosis, which acts like cancer. And it produces uh -huh. scar tissue. And that scar tissue wraps around the bowel and the organs. So subsequently in 2016, during a normal endoscopy, they couldn't move the tube because the scar tissue was so much. I had that first surgery and then I had a second eight hour surgery to correct problems I had with my kidneys. I had bilateral hydronephrosis. I was a mess. And I've never really recovered from that. The final thing has been uh, seven specialists in my uh, primary care physician have said, we have no idea why you're still alive. You shouldn't be. I have been on hospice twice. Um, and he didn't take me. Um, I'm still sick and I'm about going through a cycle again. Yeah. And I wanted, I, I wanted to food down bill. Yeah. I wanted to, um, I want to talk about your, your, stints in hospice. But before that, there was a couple things that you said that um, I'm, I'm curious about. Now, your dad, now he was a school teacher. And Correct. the way you describe him in, in the home, he was very abusive, physically abusive. I mean, did he have a, a public persona that he put out there as a school teacher? And if so, how did that, how did that affect you seeing that like, was he loved by his students? And well, yeah, that was that was the difficult part. Everybody that met my father, he was gregarious towards them. And I mean, they loved him. He's the smartest guy I've ever met. I know he had an IQ over 168. Later on, he became the captain of the Wildwood Crest Beach Patrol. And so the way he acted towards those guys and the way he acted towards me and my brothers were two different things. Yeah. And that was tough. That's a great question you're asking because that was yeah. difficult to line that up. Because I was like, well, what did I do wrong that I'm not getting the same treatment from guys he doesn't even really know? Yeah. And he was getting this adoration and adulation from these guys. And he was competitive and smart. And he really put that beach patrol on the map. But it was troublesome to me. And I was like, I hated them even worse. Yeah. And I really hated the fact of I never knew when it was coming. Um, ultimately, I ended up protecting my brother, Tommy, when I was coming home from college. I think I was 21 at the time. And he sucker punched him. Tommy was bigger than me. He was 6'1", about 190. He was playing football at Salem College in West Virginia at the time. And, man, I went off on him. 
you know, all these years came out. I really busted him up. And the conflict on that was terrible. Even though yeah. I didn't really love this guy, this was my father. And it was just, it was a horror show going on in the house. And yeah, he ended up eventually meeting a woman, remarried, you know, was gone. But I never really spent, I tried to, but he just wasn't available, Bill. And yeah. um, it was, fathers are important to their sons. And yeah. he was not there, but yet he'd have that time for the other guys. And that was difficult. Matter of fact, let me just tell you something. I remember when I was an intern and Jim Freed was in charge of the chaplains down at the Colony of Mercy. And we had one weekend, it was crazy. We had these conflict resolution forms that we wrote up on guys. And I wrote up 24. Nobody ever did anything like that. I went through 24 guys. And, and those conflict resolution forms really helped save my life. I learned how to do biblical confrontation, how to do biblical reconciliation. He called me in his office and I just knew he was going to praise me because I had written 24 and had done my job. And he said, you're doing a really good job. You're the only guy down here doing the CRs and you know, you're, you're listening, you're not letting the guys curse and talking about drugs and all the horror and war stories and everything. He says, that's really great. I'm sitting there all prideful. And he says, but I'm hearing that your, um, your delivery's not that good. And a lot of the guys are upset with you. And then he looked me in the eye and he said, which father do you want them to see? The one that hangs out with your lifeguard friends or the one that came home to your house? And boy, was I crushed. Yeah. But what a great lesson. Yeah. Because I was doing the first half right. But the second half was not in a Christ-like manner. Yeah, And it was, a, it was a tremendous lesson that I've still remind myself of. I don't have it down perfectly. You know, I basically have a big personality with opinions and, and I let them out. Sometimes it gets misconstrued. Um, but I'm really interested in what you have to say. And I don't think my way is the right way. I, I think my way is the right way until I hear from somebody else. And then yeah, I incorporate, yeah. you know, but I'm yeah. strong about what I think about, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's good. Which, did, which didn't work well in my marriage. <laughs> it's good to be strong about that. You, I think you should be. And as long as we, we maintain a teachable spirit. Right. You know, and That's we know right. what we believe and we know why we believe it. And we're, and until God shows us something different or clicks a light bulb on or shows us something you know, as long as we, we remain teachable and our hearts remain open. I um, use an acronym, Bill, that says I need to act. I need to be approachable, coachable, and teachable. That's good. Yeah, I like that. Now, going back to 2016, when they they had told you that you were pretty much a mess, it, was that the first time you went into hospice? Yes. And what was that process like as far as... Um, I mean, when you're going in the hospice, you face you were facing down death um, with the grief process. I'm sure there was grief involved that well, it, it was, life as you knew it here was going to end. It was surreal because I didn't see it coming. They were doing a simple endoscopy and couldn't move the tube. And that's when they came and said, you have so much scar tissue, we cannot do anything else. We can't open you up. We can't do any other surgeries. Uh, at that point, I had begun to throw up. 
um, a lot. After the Whipple, I was throwing up all the time. They were trying to wake wake my stomach up, and I don't want to get gross, but, I mean, I was throwing up everything, blood, any type of food they were putting in me, feces. I mean, it was terrible, Bill. In 2016, I thought maybe I was making a little bit of progress until we went through that. It was actually called an enteroscopy. It's an extra six feet of tube. They were looking. They thought they left this kind of wick in there that may have been causing me pain, causing me to throw up. What was causing me to throw up was my pancreas wasn't working right, and my digestive system was backwards. You know, I could take a bite of food, Bill, and feel like I ate a Thanksgiving meal. Yeah. But I had to carry these blue bags around with me all the time. We'd go out to dinner. I'd excuse myself. It was terrible. Yeah. And that's been for the last 10 years, you know. Um, do you ever get used to it? No. But um, on hospice, um, on one hand, the attention was nice. They did manage my pain, which was really a plus. But after a year... They came and said, Medicare said that we need to take you off because you're not dying fast enough. <laughs> Just one of the all-time great lines. I thought they yeah. were joking. They were serious. The nurses were crying. Yeah. And I I was down weight and a whole bit, and I didn't know what to do after that. I kind of came back. We were busy with the ministry. It was so difficult for me to, to travel, and we would work when we would go to these churches, we'd get there on a Thursday night, Friday, we would do set up, try out all the electronics, you know, kind of a dress rehearsal. Saturday, we, we'd get there at seven to make sure everything was okay and start teaching at eight. Initially it was eight hours. We cut it to six. We covered a lot of territory that was helping a lot of families. And I got high, as you know, you know me, I get high around people. Yeah. Yeah. And I collapse. And so she was left with a lot of that. Um, and then COVID struck in 2021 that really slowed us down. But there was an incident in 2000 where we had a disagreement. And she went out on a trip that had been planned. And, I, and that was really when I look back to the beginning of the end. She had made a decision at that point. I'm pretty sure that she wanted out. And we hung in there, but it was tense and... It was sad. There was a lot of sadness, you know, because right. I didn't feel like, you know, I was doing the things I was doing. I'll just leave it at this since I'm not going to badmouth her. When people want to get out of something, they create a narrative. And you were involved in it and saw some of it. So did some other pastors. So did some other people. But it doesn't matter what other people see or what they say. And I've been there. When an individual makes up his mind that he wants to do this, then you're going to find everything you can to fit that narrative to say, look, aren't I right? Yeah. Now, the word keeps me pretty anchored from doing that. You know, I'll own what I've done. I will always own it. But I've been taught to clean up my side of the street only. Right. I can't clean up somebody else's side. I was laying in bed on hospice and she left. She apparently had some head injury. I don't want to get into the details, but it ended up being a lot of lies and, and a way to escape. And I've seen her twice since August of 
2021. So, yeah, it's a lot of pain. Yeah, we don't have to get into a lot of the details, but I want I want the the listeners to see and and from what I observe is that you April that was April of 2021 you you were going to go into hospice and this was really going to be it for you you were you were dying April 2022 Bill April 2022 you were oh, Wait a minute no you're right April 2021 yeah. right so I remember and so there you were and and you you had a lot of goodbyes and you're going through this grief process that your your body's breaking down and you're dying and then on top of that during that and for whatever reason your wife left you and created that narrative which was really a deep betrayal so you have physical death going on but then you have that relational death going on all at once i mean it was was right right. the perfect storm i prayed what got you through that there were several people that were consistent in my life you being one of them my pastor associate pastor a couple good friends but really it was the lord it was in the word it was crying out i was under the impression she had a nervous breakdown that's what we were told right and that I couldn't see her because it might set her back. Well, that was a lie. And mm-hmm. so I didn't know it was a lie. The pain got so bad December 1st, I tried to kill myself. I tried emotional to pain or physical pain? I had physical pain, but the emotional pain was like, yeah. man, I put this woman through this. Yeah. And now she's fighting for her life is what I thought. Yeah. Meanwhile, she was in attorney's offices and right. you know, changed the passwords on credit cards and blah, blah, blah. But but in her mind, she was taking care of me. I mean, my, I'd switched a joint account because I thought I was going to be dead. My weight was going down. Um, it was the emotional pain that really was just so much. And, you know, without having a strong foundational background, and trust in God. Um, I don't think I would have just tried one time to walk in front of an 18 wheel or I would have gotten more creative. Right. Because at that point, physically, I didn't want to live. I was in mm-hmm. so much pain and wasn't sure what was going to happen. I mean, the ultimate came down was I decided to get off of hospice. I won't tell you what my nurse said, but she dropped an F-bomb by saying, I've been nursing for 20 years and this is the dumbest effing decision I've ever seen. (laughs) But I said, look, I'm too mucked up with all these meds. And I said, you know, it looks like now I'm fighting for my marriage and I want to be in as good a shape as I can. Her narrative was I was abusing my meds. You know, I wasn't the hospice, angelic hospice, knew I wasn't and was willing to give a letter. I was told the word out there was that I abused them and then uh, was forced by somebody, whose name I won't mention, uh, as an intervention to go down to Cooper to detox. Well, that didn't happen. I chose to do that with my primary care physician. And thank God I did because I almost died twice. I mean, it was I was coming off of really heavy meds. Mm-hmm. And I came home at 116 pounds. 
Yeah, I remember. Yep. And if you want to talk about grief, I came home and I called her and said, you're not here. I got no car. I don't have any money and I don't have any food. And they want me to try to eat. Could you please go to the supermarket for me? And she said, no. Yeah. Which was five minutes away. She said, you know, get an account and order in. I, I knew at that point uh, things weren't good. But um, grief is a process, as you know. And you and I know it um, together because of what you went through with Liam. Yeah. Um, and you don't know when it's going to hit you. You don't know when those mini depressions come in. You don't know what it's going to be that's going to, you know, tip you off. I, I laugh about it because I shared it last night. But yesterday I had a tough day. I wanted to go knock on the door and get some closure. Like, what yeah, happened? Yeah. Like, you know? Yeah. I knew not to go. I knew I wasn't going to get an answer. So I did what I did to answer your question in a roundabout way. I sat and I prayed. I read in scripture and, and I prayed and I said, you know, Lord, am I wrong to be seeking this thing for closure? And it really came down to, well, who's this about? Is this about you or yeah. is this about following me? Yeah. Because if it's about following me, uh, she abandoned you while you were on hospice. She's rejected you. Bobby gave about nine things and said, how much more closure do you want? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you want your closure. And that's not really what you want. Mm -hmm. You want it to be okay. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. Um, and I there's a book by Ethan Cross. It's called Chatter. He's a neurosurgeon. He said that our body, that our brain processes physical pain and emotional pain the same. So here you were. You know, you were you were on hospice. You were you were you were in the process of dying. You were down to 116 pounds, and you find out that your your wife leaves suddenly, abruptly, and then there's a story that whilst because of you being on hospice, there was a nervous breakdown. So you felt bad about that. You felt yeah. bad about that. I, I felt horrible. You felt horrible, and then you went through that grief, but then you found out that that was all kind of an elaborate lie to really just to, to bail on you. Um, that I guess I, you know, I try to wrap my head around it. Probably Thank God my pastor was with me because people would have thought I made it up. Yeah. I mean, it was that bizarre. Yeah, that you were not, um, you know, that when you found out that it was, it was an elaborate lie. That's more grief on top of that. And then being treated like a pariah almost. And I watched all of that, Joe, and you did, you reached out. We talked sometimes almost on a daily basis and um, you stayed upon God, you stayed upon your God and you talked to other people and you weren't afraid to talk about how you were feeling. You weren't afraid to talk about. And, and that's, that's a pitfall that men fall into. They don't want to talk about how they feel or admit how they feel. And you were pretty, your emotions were pretty raw at the time. You were hit hard and you had that double whammy of physical and emotional pain. Yeah. And, you know, Bill, on top of it, um, in 
July of 2020, when I saw what was going on through the next couple months, I had several conversations to the point I think I was driving them crazy. Plus, I was talking to a therapist. Mm -hmm. And uh, we ended up becoming a really good friend, and he was a Christian, and I turned him on to the victorious Christian life. I mean, so there was that part that was happening, serving. And, but I, um, I, I got, I was like, she wants out. She went to my brothers. She went to two of my brothers and sister-in-laws and asked if they would put additions on their house back in 2020 to take me. So, I mean, this was in the works. Yeah. And then she would come out of it because we really loved each other. But this was her third marriage. This is her third divorce. And she just doesn't like to be married. I mean, yeah, it's what it is. And, you know, the same narratives that she had in the first and the second and the third and the affair, you know, there were affairs in between all that other stuff was still there. That didn't take away my love for her. And now I look at it like she's my sister in Christ, no matter what happens. I mean, that's what the word says. Yeah. She's truly born again. But yeah. I will tell you this, that um, several times I was ready to go empty out the bank account because I could see I was going to get tattooed. Uh -huh. And I would talk to my pastor about it and say, look, I'm just going to go over. I'm going to take this. I'll leave a little bit. I'm going to switch my social security checks because I was paying all the bills. So I thought I didn't know she had hidden money. Um, but, you know, and I was going to do that. When I prayed on it, I did not get permission from the Holy Spirit to go do that. Yeah. It was not there. And I knew it. And I said, okay, you can go do this. But if you do this, this is out of your design and out of your flesh. Now, there's some people that could say, and it happened three or four times that I mentioned it, that it was that strong. And I know that I heard, well, you can do that. You can go do that. But it's not me who's giving you permission to do that. It's you doing that. It's your yeah. flesh, you know? Yeah. And so I didn't do it. Now, some people would look and say, well, that was really stupid. You know, you could have really set yourself up a lot better and you would have been in better shape and would not have gone through as much pain. You can't compare what you think you're going to do to God's plan. Because there are things that have happened through me not doing that, that have helped others. Yeah. And, and ultimately, that's what it's about. You know, it's about Christ. Christ didn't think of himself. He thought of others, you know, and not just others, but the wretched. I mean, the lepers and, you know, the woman that had the problem with blood and the woman at the well and. The woman caught in adultery and on and on and on. Um, so I I don't have regrets. Now, my head will take over and say, this is what you would have had and, and done what? And done what? I would have still been grieving the loss of the marriage. Yeah. yeah. And not only that, but let me share something else. Because of the lies being told, 
I've lost some really close friends. Yeah. But out of that came again the word in first Peter two uh first Peter one twenty-three about Jesus says, and when reviled, he reviled not, and when suffering he did not threaten, but relied on the one who who judges justly. And so and I look at all the things that Christ went through. When I look at all the injustices that were done to our Jesus, I mean, am I really going to complain? Am I really going to, you know, sit there and say, well, if you had left earlier, you would have had more money and done what? And done what? And yeah. that's why I don't want to get into the he said, she said stuff. And it's it's hard for me to keep my mouth shut. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know that. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I want to just go and say, do you know what really happened? Because they're not interested in what happened. And my no. friend, my friend Carolyn said to me about, you know, two of the people. She said, you know what, Joe, I got to be honest with you, but excuse my expression, but, but screw them. Like they didn't call you. They yeah. didn't call you to see how you were doing. They didn't yeah. call you after they heard from her. This is what we were just told um you know and she's right i mean sometimes it's god just pruning you know weeding out like these aren't your true friends yeah and so but boy is grief a process bill holy mackerel yeah you know i yeah. think i was really good at burying it but um i'm getting better at now dealing with it yeah, I mean, when we talk about grief and and the grief process, it's usually related to death. But there is a big grief. I mean, I know that in my in my divorce, um, leading up to it, the things that happened, the rejection, the betrayal for me, there was a there was a strong grieving and 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 mourning and reaching the acceptance stage that that relationship exactly. is over that relationship's over it's gone it is what it is and that god doesn't write us off once we're once we're divorced it turned out to for me to be the best thing that ever happened right but it was there was definitely a a strong grieving process in that so when we think about loss and grief i think that i remember a long time ago i it came to me that, you know, and in working with addicts, people do not know what to do with their grief. They don't know how to mourn. They don't know how to move through the process. And people get stuck in various stages or they numb it or they just put their heads down and keep on moving. And when, when Liam died, I, I knew how much danger I was in, yeah. in getting stuck, you know, and getting really stuck in, in, in the pain and the grief and, and avoiding it. I was figuring out how, how, how can I get out of this? How can I not go through this? You know, and that. Well, you think that, it's not going to end. Yeah. And you think that the intensity from the beginning after you get through the shock, you know, is going to dissipate. Yeah. And oftentimes it gets worse out of frustration. Yeah. You yeah. know, because you sit there and say, well, I didn't do this. And yeah. I didn't do what I'm, I didn't have control of this. 
this got put in my lap. I mean, certainly the phone call you got the night of Liam's death got put in your lap. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, what took place at my house on August 23rd got put in my lap. Yeah. So it's not that, that things aren't going to happen to us. What was that book? Is why do bad things happen to good people? Yeah. Um, yeah. Nice title. But the fact, <laughs> that, the fact of the matter is uh, all of us get a turn at the, we all get a turn, you know? Yeah. And, and to me, I, I've, again, I've talked to my friend Carolyn, and it's like, what do people do without Jesus? What do you do? I saw my doctor today, Hamanshu Patel. I love this man from India. He loves the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he's a prayer warrior and constantly in the midst of all the physical stuff that we're diagnosed, and he's constantly talking about prayer constantly talking about constant contact with god mm -hmm. always talking about being able to give it to him everything you know and i watched the special last night on the amish there's a lot of things the amish you can get into the law a little bit but um you know they're very firm on the reason we do what we do and separate is this is not our world yeah this is not our world you're asking us to do something in this world it's not our you know we're in it but we're not of it yeah and that time's coming and so um yeah i, I you know sometimes i think i've turned the corner and then yesterday boom i got hit man was that yeah crazy. Yeah. To take a walk, you know, and let the tears come and um, and move forward because it's not going to change. Yeah. So, again, it's – and I don't do being busy for the sake of being busy sake because mm -hmm. I just don't think that's what he does. I mean, he's allowing that time for us to choose. Yeah. I've been doing pretty consistent devotions up at the upper lake at Keswick, you know, it's a nice spot for me and some good Christian music. And I'm writing out this Holy spirit kind of gave me a task to do on how to evangelize, you know, using mm -hmm. John chapter three with Jesus saying, you must be born again. I started talking to a lot of my um, church goers and Christian friends. And I was shocked at how many people did not know, where you must be born again came from and what does yeah. it mean what is jesus talking about so you know he's kind to me that way and that he fills that time up it's that downtime that gets me it's yeah. that alone time yeah and, and you remember that you know yeah. because you just get in your head about well what if i had seen him the day before or what if i had talked to him a week before what if he had called me or yeah. You know, what if I had seen the signs and I mean that'll drive you up a wall, Bill. Yeah, yeah. all those what ifs and what I could have done. Right. right. Let me ask you this about the times that you went into hospice, because one of the things I learned on my grief journey was that the the Kubler the Kubler Ross model. 
right. of death and dying, the stages of grief, she, she wrote that observing people that were dying, right. people that lost others, and that the stages are not linear. Um, I read a lot of Alan Wolfelt stuff who really, he talks about reconciling your grief. He talks about the needs of mourning and, and things like that. But since you were someone that was facing death, did you find yourself going through any of those stages of bargaining or anger or? You know, it's funny. I didn't with the anger and the bargaining. I kind of went to acceptance pretty quickly. Uh-huh. So I was in such bad pain. I was spending so much time in the hospital. I was watching Cherry make the trip 40 miles down Route 70, sit for six hours, 40 miles back. I didn't, I, yeah. I didn't, I didn't like that. I didn't. I mean, I was grateful for it, but that was rough on her. I, I, yeah. went, I went right to acceptance. There was never any bargaining. I was at a point where I'm at right now. I'm in such pain. I just said kiddingly to, uh, to my friend that tomorrow when I do my um, endoscopy, I'm like, I hope he pushes too hard and perforates my bowel and I bleed out <laughs> on the table. It gives you too much anesthesia. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, it just gives me propofol that takes me into Michael Jackson's La La Land. <laughs> but I'm anxious to be home with the Lord at this point. You know, it's not like I'm, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I went through a period of time of uh, suicidal thoughts and how to take myself out, but I, I, I want to finish well, you know, yeah. and, and I don't know if maybe that's not considering finishing well. I don't know what's in God's head and how he wants us to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we could, I could very much make an argument that said, you know, he planted the seed for me because, you know, Look, Bill, they don't know why my liver's still here. I mean, I, I mean, I drank. I mean, yeah. my liver is in is intact. Um, the pancreas, I, I have terrible chronic calcified pancreatitis. Gallbladder's gone. They rearranged everything. Scar tissue from the retroperitoneal fibrosis is all over the place. I talked with the doctor today, and I said, I'm trying to do the right thing. I've been walking. Um, fortunately in the place that I'm living with my friend, Carolyn, she's a licensed, uh, home caregiver. And, um, after going through the last, I'm going to say it was four years with Cherry. I could see that she was backing off a little bit and really a lot in the last three. And, and then to just leave me, that was horrible. Being on hospice alone in your house um, was just not, that was not fun. To have somebody that you can go up and talk and say, look, I'm having a really tough time. Those things are necessary. Today, I had a chance to talk with the doc and I said to him, I'm not ready yet. I just put an application in for substitute teaching. Um, I'm doing the things that are necessary so I can get out of the house and, and be an influence on some young people, you know? 
Yeah, yeah. And and so there's there's that point. Um you know, and just I'm going to the Holy Land. I'm set to go to the Holy Land November 30th on a 10-day trip with people from our church. So I did buy um, trip insurance. <laughs> I don't know if I'll make it to that point, you know. Yeah. But it, but I'm at least looking at that. And yeah. um, if I had my druthers, I would go in my sleep tonight and go see the eyes of Jesus. Yeah. Because this is... This is difficult for me. Yeah. Yeah, Joe. And, and you mentioned before that you said that, and, and I can testify to this, that as long as I've known you and for pretty much the whole time that I've known you, you've been battling this sickness. You've been on hospice three times. You don't complain. You've had this attitude where you're going to serve Christ. Okay. You're gonna you're gonna work with him. You all right, Joe? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'll just edit that out. But you you had that attitude that you're gonna serve Christ as long as He gives you breath. You're gonna serve Him and walk with Him, and you never really did complain. And the verse that always came up with me is that His power is made perfect in your weakness. It is. That's one of my favorite verses. You know, your body's weak, you're broken down, you're falling apart, but God's power is made perfect in your weakness. And I always saw that. And it was always a mild rebuke that, hey, look what Joe's going through until Liam died, of course. But look right. what Joe's <laughs> going through. You're going to complain about a long line at Outback or whatever. Whatever right. It is. Exactly. Um, it was always this admonition to, you know, live like like Joe. That you were committed to, as long as Christ has you here, to loving others and helping other addicts, helping other people. And you talked me off the cliff three thirty in the morning, the the night you know of Liam's death. And um, you were always there for people. And like like I said, you don't. You don't complain. And that is the power of the gospel. That is the power of Christ. Well, you know, it's interesting about that verse is like, I, I, I love that. That's Paul, I think, in chapter 12. In 11, he talks about in danger, in danger. You know, he gets into the thing of the thorn in the flesh. But before yeah. that, he talks about in danger and shipwrecks, in danger and this, in danger, right? Yeah. And then he gets to this thorn in his flesh. And I guess it was about a year ago, I said, Whatever that thorn was in his flesh, it must have really sucked because he talked about in danger like there was nothing, right? Yeah, yeah. But he had this one thing that drove him crazy. Yeah. And the only way that he could justify it was by saying, in my weakness, you know, Jesus actually said it to him, in your weakness, yeah. my strength is made perfect. Yeah. And therefore, yeah. Paul then gets it. And he says, then I should rather boast of my calamities i should yeah. boast of, of those shortcomings i have and i'm learning to do that bill i'm learning to say that through the difficulties of this divorce it's the most current um and by the way i'll tell you this right now the divorce in the way that it happened has been far more painful than anything i went through with any news of the physical yeah it just, 
it overshadows it. Partly because the diagnosis of the medical was true and honest and had been looked at and confirmed. This other one is two sides. Now I know what the truth is from my side. And I know what her narrative is. And I have to trust that my father knows what's going on because he does. Yeah. And the other thing is there are consequences <laughs> to our decisions. Yeah. I experienced consequences in my first divorce because um, I initiated that. I didn't initiate this one. Um, I saw consequences in her first and second divorces and they were not good. God is very, very clear about those consequences to our choices. Not this punishing, I'm coming after you, God. But I need to remind you that there's a way to do things and there's a way not to do things. Um, for me, when that Bible gets to be about 500 pounds and I can't lift it and I can't open the pages, I'm in big trouble. Yeah. I'm in really, really big trouble because all the answers are in his word. And, um, and I think the other thing is like Tuesday nights coming on that zoom meeting. It's huge for me. It's just, yeah. it's huge. You know, yeah. staying, staying in touch with you, you know, making, you know, making those efforts to get together or to see you or to, you know, talk with you. That's important to me. And there's a couple other guys I have like that, you know, I stay in touch with my, um, two past the, the head pastor and the number one associate pastor at our church. And we get together at least, you know, once a month for a, a sit down a catch up and then a lunch or something. And, um, now I go in the bathroom and throw it up and come back out and tell them all about it. But <laughs> the uh, conversation's good because that consistency is really important. I try to hang around people that are going to tell me the truth. Um, last night on the Zoom, when I said, when I brought up the tell on myself time and was talking about, um, you know, I needed closure and I was going to go to the house and knock on the door. I thought you were going to break your neck shaking your head as hard as you did. And I was like, I get it, Billy. I didn't do it. Don't do it, Joe. But Don't it, do it. You know what the thing I know is? It's fruitless. Yeah. When someone has their mind made up, you're a threat. You're a reminder that you lied. You're That person's a reminder of it didn't have to go down this way. And yeah. so, in in a, in a way, there's a real, <laughs> there would have been a real selfishness to that, you know, for me. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but I, I think it's the keeping it simple. Just to let you know, talking with the doctor today, when I said to him, I'm not ready to do this. I'm trying to look forward to some things. You got to be careful on how far out you're looking. Yeah. You're only promised today. Yeah. But you got to do the necessary things so that they can happen. So I had to do recent MRIs. Tomorrow I have an endoscopy. Why? Most of it's insurance reasons. Most of it's for doctors to say, what are the latest scans? What are they telling you? What do you think? And can we justify, um, 
you know, hospice palliative care again. And and I will tell you this, one of the mistakes I made was letting people know I was going on hospice. Hospice, as we talked about last night, has such a bad connotation to it that people think hospice means the last three days of your life on this earth and then you're automatically dead. Hospice in their brochure says coming on hospice is not necessarily a death sentence. Yeah. It's a way for us to be able to not only help you, but help your family. So mm -hmm. when I go on hospice again, and I think it's going to happen because I'm losing weight and I'm throwing up again and it's just yeah pain and it's happening again. And it gets to a point I just, I can't endure it. And so there's a reason that that's there. Um, and I think that the next time I go on it, Bill, will be the last time, I think. Yeah. I never thought I was going to die the first time. Uh -huh. The last time last year, I felt I was on my way. Yeah. But I felt that there were going to be extenuating circumstances that needed to bring it along. This time I'm so mentally tired and worn out that I, I don't have that mental capacity to really battle back. Yeah. Or yeah. do I really want to? I want to rest. Yeah. You know, if that's selfish, okay, but it's okay to want to rest. And yeah. I've been going through this now for it's 10 years this month. It was just 10 years over the yeah. fourth weekend it's a long yeah. time you know so yeah. so i'm 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 continuing to do the next right thing um i spoke with the doctor today and said do you have any problem if this comes up again of calling angelic for hospice and he said absolutely not he said i would right. recommend so i wanted to say this that i think the interesting thing about grief is we've got zero control over it Grief comes usually out of nowhere and it causes tremendous pain. Some of that pain, I believe, is because we don't have control of it. I did not sign up for this. Yeah. I was yeah, not yeah. prepared for this. Mm -hmm. and, and yet it's a process of healing. We have to heal through our grief. God allows us to grieve. Um, Jesus grieved over Lazarus. Yeah. He grieved tremendously over Lazarus. Yeah. I believe he grieved over Peter and Peter's denial. And I I think he grieved over the guys falling asleep, you know. And I think to some degree he, you know, he grieved a little bit when he said, you know, hey, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Yeah. You know? But yeah. what did he do? The example was he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And I think that's the key to dealing with grief. Yeah. Because, you know, Father, I want to do X, Y, and Z to get out of this pain. Yeah. But nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. Sometimes yeah. I think he wants us to feel grief. I yeah. think he wants us to feel if Jesus is living in us, how do you think Jesus felt? He goes in on a Sunday with Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And four days later, he hears Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. Yeah. You talk yeah. about a guy that had a right to grieve and he didn't say anything. Yeah. Said the pilot, you're the one that said it. I didn't. So.
Yeah. Yeah, so it's been it's been interesting, I would say to you, so that you get the uh, inside scoop. I would say that my trip to the Holy Land is 50-50 at best. Yeah. The way, the way things are going. My weight's dropped back under 145. Well, uh, if you don't make it to the Holy Land, you'll be yeah. in the new, the new Jerusalem. The new I'll make... I'll make uh, I'm going to go on a trip one way or another. One way or the other, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I hope this some of this has helped. But um, that's a good question that you asked regarding the Kubler-Ross and the steps because I hadn't yeah. thought about that. But I was right to acceptance. Right. I wasn't angry at all. Yeah. I mean, I was accepting of the fact that he's my dad. Yeah. And, and you I read just, you read the Andy you read the Randy Alcorn book on heaven. Oh, right? that was phenomenal. That was that was almost too much fun. Yeah. Did you read Imagine Heaven too? Did you read that? I one? did. I did read yeah. that. Yeah. 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 So, so, well, you know what got me, Bill, was the fact that in the Imagine Heaven, I think I talked to you about this before. Even the agnostics and atheists said the same things as the believers the same yeah. three words they said they experienced and it's the first three fruit of the holy spirit peace love and joy yeah they all said that yeah and uh that to me was profound yeah that the yeah. agnostic and atheist would say i can't deny the fact that wherever i was or whatever was happening this overwhelming sense of peace, love, and joy was there. Yeah. And I, and I thought, yeah. wow. Yeah. yeah. And I remember, yeah. And, and one of the other things is that even in cultures where Jesus wasn't taught or named, they described this tremendous being of light, this tremendous right. man yes. of light as the highlight of heaven. And they were describing Jesus in, in, in the revelation, Jesus, um, that that was that was beautiful too. That was just yeah because was that was really uncomforting, unsolicited, yeah, and come and and coming from untaught, yeah, actually coming from the cynical, yeah, yeah. Um, so how comforting is that? Yeah, and I remember you telling me that you were having a long talk with the Lord about it, like is like something to the degree was it true or is it a dirt nap and and god kind of answered well what are you talking to me oh, I was, I was, this is a long time ago i was sitting on the front steps and i said i i looked up and i said lord what if it is true what some of these people are saying that we just die and we become like worm food and <laughs> i heard as clear as i've ever heard the holy spirit father whoever it was say well if that's true, why are you talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, and I'll tell you what, I started laughing so loudly. Across the street, my two neighbors were out of their twin homes. And next yeah. door, my neighbor was out. And they all looked over and I said, they must either think, boy, this thing, <laughs> Jesus is really good because look how happy he is. Or he's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I said, "Well, I can combine it and tell you I'm crazy for Jesus." So, yeah, you know, yeah. 
And and that and that is I, I know that you were prepared, so you went right to acceptance stage. I thought that I could with Liam. I wanted to I figure, well, if he's in heaven, if he has eternal life, I, you know, I wanted I, I thought I could go right to the acceptance stage, but it was it was the most difficult thing I ever faced. And um everything I think the reason for that, Bill. The reason is that for me individually there was this pain and suffering that was constant right you see that yeah and so this whole self-preservation thing over the past uh years had 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 abated because because self needed to go you yeah. know that's what i was learning as a father from the beginning you've been taught to protect your son yeah yeah and so much that was there was that you're in your grief there's that guilt that says i wasn't there to protect yeah so it's it's nearly impossible in a situation like that to go to acceptance yeah i think there's pieces of it i think that i remember talking to you finally and saying you know bill i don't quite know how to say this but i but i feel confident in talking to you because i know how close i am with you but if you think about it, Liam's in such a better place than we are. Yeah. And you're down here grieving him and crying and, I mean, torturing yourself. He's dancing on clouds. <laughs> and yeah. which is true. And and that didn't, you know, that didn't suffice and cure. And, but it definitely gave food for thought to say, yeah, you know what, you're right about that. And so... Yeah. Being surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we lay aside every weight. Yeah, <laughs> sin. And that that hope is what you know gave me the perseverance to endure the pain. You know, even right. though even even though at times it was it was mixed with doubt, it was that hope that allowed me, you know, to persevere and to go through that. Something happened yesterday that really um, came out of nowhere. So. Carrie and I, we had to um, take one of our cars in just for maintenance and service. So I took it there, and then Carrie picked me up in the Camry, and we bought we bought a new car, which Carrie has been driving, and I've been driving the Camry. Well, when Liam died, you know the Camry was one of our main cars, but I usually drive. When Liam drived and when Liam died in my, when I was um, a mess, Carrie drove me everywhere, mm. whether it would be to, you know, the cremation place or to, she just would not let me drive. She, she just saw the grief brain. She saw it all and she wouldn't let me drive. Well, she picked me up yesterday and just, she figured, well, I'll, you know, I'll drive. So she was driving and she was driving me around in the Camry and that had not happened oh, no. since, since that time. And without even being aware of it, all of a sudden I felt like I was, I was having trouble breathing, you know, deep breaths. It felt yeah. like someone hit me in the gut and I felt this, I felt it. And I was like trying to take deep breaths and I said, what's going on? And then I, then it dawned on me why that that was a trigger that Carrie hadn't driven me around since that time, since the very early days of, of 
Liam's death. So once I was aware of it, I was able to kind of, you know, think on and say, all right, Lord, that's what's going on. Okay. You know, it's, it's just kind of subconscious. I was able to take a few deep breaths and I was fine. But you, you bring up a good point though, because if you ask the majority of people, if you ask this question, is grief physical or emotional? The majority of people would say emotional. Yeah. And yet there is so much physical involved yeah. with grief. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there are times somebody asked me how I was doing and I would just start crying. Mm -hmm. and, and the lump in my throat was like, you know, a, a, a pool ball. Yeah. And I just couldn't get through that. Or yeah, a thought comes through and all of a sudden I go from being here to down here because, you know, down to my stomach because of what you described, that feeling comes across. Yeah. Now, once we recognize what it is, especially that verse you gave where Jesus says to Paul, in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. So then, you know, Brother Paul doesn't mess around. He says, look, you know what? Even though I got issues, I'm going to brag about and boast about what I've been through. Why? Because when I go through those worst of times, who's closest to me? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, and he's always closest to us because he lives in us. Yeah. It's just that that's when we call upon him. Yeah. So kind of, you know, Jesus shows up. So it's a good topic, Bill. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Jesus living in us. We live in him. We have, I mean, that makes our relationship as easy as breathing. He's our ever-present help in time of need. And I might have shared this on previous podcasts, but I don't think so. I kept asking for a vision of, of Liam. Not a dream, not when I'm asleep. I need to be wide awake and I need to see him like, right. the, like the apostles saw Moses and Elijah and Jesus. That's the kind of vision I want. And I kept asking for it. That You could do that. And the Lord said, well, what would you rather have? A, a quick vision that, you know, is there and gone or me living with you, in you, as you, you living in me. Right. Perfect, my presence, 24-7. What would you rather have? And I said, well, can I have both? Right. <laughs> but if I had to pick one or the other, it's you, Lord. It's you 24-7 as the comforter as my counselor, as my ever-present help in time of need. And I can tell you, he, God has not let me down in any of it. You, know, he's you, get, you get other mini Liam moments. Yeah. You know, that one happened to be the pinnacle yeah. of, of um, you know, of, of, of something that, you know, kicks off all yeah. of that grief. Yeah. But there's those mini griefs. Yeah. And, you know, we, we handle that, but we do it the same way. We do it through the presence of Jesus Christ. And um, he, listen, either he tells the truth or he doesn't, but he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Yeah. And yeah. if that's true, then it comes down to something I'm not good at, which is patience to get through it. You know? Yeah. Um, I don't know what he has in store next for me. I don't see another woman in relationship i don't i don't see a lot of things to be honest with you but i think there's yeah. a reason for that i think that i think that um 
I think he wanted me to experience this thing with Jerry. Mm -hmm. I really yeah. do. Yeah. I think I, things were going, things were going along smoothly. First time in my life. It's the longest I'd ever lived in one place. Same address. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of routine that was happening. Were we serving him in the ministry? Yes, we were. Um, but was I maybe spiritually getting fat, dumb, and happy? Maybe. Um, and and I don't need to know. I just yeah. know that it happened. Yeah. I got to be honest with you, Bill. She left the 23rd of August. And on the 25th of August, they had a Zoom meeting with the daughters and cousins and sisters and all this and she really loves you and you're you know she'd give me these two beautiful cards and all this other stuff and now she's gone and she's yeah. sending a parade in to take the car and the checkbooks and all this other stuff and i'm like i mean i was out of it you know um yeah but he had my pastor there that day and i know well enough as a counselor that you're not you are not diagnosing that condition in a right day, in a day in fact yeah. the pastor said to me not even any doctors in on the diagnosis no and and my pastor said to me um i felt a lot better if a professional had told us that so you know there are those things that, to look at and and what would it have been like if he wasn't there it would have been my word against you know 10 other yeah. people that had circled the wagon so yeah you know, each day is going to get a little bit better. But if if you asked me what I would like to have happen is I would really like to kind of, you know, wrap some things up and be able to prepare to, to really go home because yeah. I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little tired of feeling this way. You know, yeah. it's very, you can't eat. It's pretty limiting. You know, I yeah. try. I try yeah. to do that, but I don't. Yeah, I don't get the nutritional that I want. Yeah. So, um, but you know, this is a good topic. I'm glad you asked me to come on today. Yeah, I'm glad. I hope this, I hope this helps some people. I, I hope so not, too, Joe. I'm not alone. You know, I'm sure it will. I keep hearing, I keep hearing Livia Soprano say, "Why doesn't the Lord take me now?" Yeah, right. <laughs> And I often wonder, but Joe, what, what, you know, like I said, you, what you've been through is kind of a, an encouragement and a mild rebuke at the same time, because you, you've persevered and you've kept your eyes on Jesus and through the ups and downs. And uh, you know that I love you very love much. You, and I always get a little torn when I hear about you going home. But the thing that I know well, I'm a little jealous because you'll see Liam first, but um, <laughs> but the thing is, and you'll hang out. You'll hang out with his his biological dad because you reminded Liam, an Irishman, yeah. scrappy. Yeah. But the thing is, is that um, you know, we we always we always want you to be here with us, and and we love you. But I know that um you've been taking it one day at a time and that's that's the best we can do and you'll hang with us on tuesday nights until it's until it's your time you know and um and, and hopefully i'll see you on your next visit up here or i'll be making a trip down there you know yeah, off yeah. or something or figure something out 
Yeah, yeah. And, uh, we'll go from there, and that's what I want to do with what I've got left. But, you know, I'm not going to be afraid to make this decision this time because I'm not going to put it on blast. I'm just, I'm just going to enter into it. Having somebody that's a professional home caregiver is huge. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. Um, because it sounds weird, but you almost need to relax to die. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get I didn't get that. Oh know, yeah, last August it was. Yeah, I had to keep records and I had to, you know, make my own phone calls and I had to get people to go out and get stuff for me and I had to, you know, clean up after myself and you know I was I had some help from hospice but it was difficult and and the fact of the matter was I was told later. People said, I didn't know you were alone. Cher told us that, you know, family was coming to see and friends and church people had keys. And there's anybody coming to see me. <laughs> yeah, most people don't want to go see somebody on hospice anyway. Yeah, we've been through this before, Joe, but all the listeners and myself will all be praying for you and um, look forward to see what God's going to do with it all. Well, I appreciate it, Bill, and you know, I always love sharing this with you, and it's a topic that both of us can relate to, so thanks for having me on, and hopefully this will help somebody, and if anybody needs to call or needs to talk, you know I'm always available. Yep, I'll put some of that information in the show notes, yeah, Joe. You thanks again. Out. Yep, you bet, Thank Bill. You. I love you, man. Love you, too. Talk to you soon. All righty. Bye-bye.